electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market Moving Insight and Analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Morgan Brennan. Jim Cramer has the morning off. Day 12 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Futures are off the morning lows as the German chancellor knocks down the possibility of a ban on Russian energy. And the market looks for some potential off-ramps as a third round of talks begins today in Belarus. Our roadmap begins with the energy shock. Oil has pulled back, still near 13-year highs as the U.S. and European allies explore banning imports of Russian oil. Plus, the Russia exposure for so many U.S.-based companies who are trying to figure out what to do, including those that have a lot of different units there, like McDonald's, Starbucks, Young, Yum, and others facing those growing pressures to suspend operations. And shares of Bed Bath & Beyond surging. Chewy founder Ryan Cohen taking a big stake and calling for changes. We're seeing a big move in that stock this morning. Carl. Guys, we're going to start with the markets and their reaction to the developments surrounding Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, it's been another weekend of very difficult headlines, David. As far as energy goes, uh, we did get to 130, uh, and we are exploring the idea of a full-out ban of Russian energy here. But the Germans really can't afford to do that. No, I mean, so much of their energy use is based on uh, the import from Russia, not just oil, obviously, but as we've pointed out so many times, natural gas, such an important component of their electricity generation in that country, particularly over the last year or two, as they have moved towards a greener envi- uh, greener uh, agenda uh, and potentially decommissioning a number of nuclear plants, although that may not be happening at quite the rate. And by the way, they also may be actually using more coal than they had originally intended as mm. well. Um, so that makes it difficult. You know, and then, Morgan, the other question is, okay, if we do, and in this country, obviously, our imports of Russian oil are quite small, although there there are some, even though we don't necessarily need to be because we could be fully energy independent, uh, given what we produce every day. Um, But the question then becomes, well, if they really are cut off from many markets, would China and India then be there for them? And therefore, would it really make that big a difference? Hard to say, but certainly this conversation continues. We've heard from Secretary of State Blinken over the weekend as well, saying similar things in terms of an effort at least being uh, talked about. And we don't know where it will end up. We don't know where it will end up, just as is the case in general, I think, with this broader conflict. Much less likely, to your point, David, that you see Europe actually cut off those energy supplies from Russia. That being said, U.S., this does seem to, based on reports, be a very active conversation Whether the U.S. goes it alone or whether it does it with its allies uh, is sort of key to the situation here. Analysts estimate about 400,000 barrels per day of Russian oil coming into the U.S. It's worth noting that not not all oil is created equal, and a lot of it is tied to the type of infrastructure you have in place to refine it into some of those uh, final products, those final energy products. So we'll see how that shift takes place. It's pretty eye-opening to see U.S. officials going to Venezuela to see if they can strike a deal to get more oil onto the global market right now. Obviously, we have all the question marks around this Iran nuclear deal, too, and what that would do to oil supplies. But to your point, even if you were to see just a shift in terms of 
where current supplies are going, be it like China and India, in the case of Russia, you're still talking about transportation costs. You're talking about the time and the gap in time that's associated with some of those uh, supply chain shifts, if you will. Also worth noting, Carl, it's not just oil and gas. I mean, we're seeing refined products like Arbob at record highs, but also look at the look at the move that nickel made overnight. Unprecedented move up something like 40 percent in the past 24 hours. You've got aluminum at record highs. You've got copper. You've got wheat, all these different commodities that all affect the broader global inflation conversation and thus the, gro- the global economic growth conversation. Yep. Uh, it's uh, it's been difficult. Incredible story in the journal this morning about Boeing and titanium and yeah. how they had tied some of their supply chain uh, to some Russian interests. Uh, at Calhoun back in January, David said, if the global situation doesn't deteriorate, we should be fine. Obviously, that didn't happen. And now we'll be looking to see how Boeing adjusts their long-term forecast on airplane production. Yeah, uh, it's titanium, right? Yeah. That's, a, that's a key component, obviously. Uh, and Russia is one of the main if not the main source for it. Uh, listen, there's so many different questions that businesses are, are asking, uh, and this has been picking up over this weekend. I know so many different large corporations that have been trying to determine what they do with their Russian businesses. Um, for some, it's easy because they really don't have a great presence there or any presence at all, and it's easy to simply say, all right, we're done with the Russian market. Uh, And they are getting pressure from their employees in the same way that you've seen pressure built around other things under, let's call it the broader ESG banner. Uh, But, you know, Morgan, when you are a company with a lot of employees in Russia, it's not as easy to make that decision. Um, And it may be counterproductive in some way because you're throwing a lot of people out of a job, which Mm -hmm. is not necessarily something you want to be doing as well. Um, but I can guarantee you, having had many conversations that, uh, as well, that so many of these businesses are simply trying to figure it out right now. What do we do in Russia? How do we go about doing it? Can we really pull out if we have a significant presence there? Or what can we do around it that will at least um, satisfy some of the asks that we're getting from our own employee base? It's such a tricky tightrope, and there's the humanitarian aspect to all this, too, which is what you see playing out with social media and tech companies right now as well, right? Maybe they are tamping down, some of those organizations are tamping down on uh, their sites where Russia-linked news organizations are concerned, but how, how broad do you get with bans, especially when you're talking about a Russian population that we know, although some of that information is limited too, has been, thousands at least, have been protesting, being tamped down against uh, this conflict in Ukraine as well. So how do you go after the country, which is really essentially being run by one man and not affect a broader population that maybe is not uh, in agreement with that particular policy and how it's playing out in the country, too. It's a very, very tricky thing. And then to your point, the supply chains, even for the companies that are not directly involved in Russia, the fact that you're going to see those ripple effects in the supply chains really throughout the world uh, and throughout the globe. Boeing is a really good example because you can talk about commercial aerospace, which many of the defense contractors also have commercial aerospace businesses and vice versa. So those supply chains might be tied to a country like Russia, but then you have this national defense strategy that basically says you've got to source from places other than Russia for your defense portfolio, but you've got to think that there's going to be uh, impacts and, and ripple effects throughout broader portfolios for a company like a Boeing. Yeah. 
Uh, you know, it's funny, you talk about the un unintended consequences of some of these corporate decisions. Shell got a hard time on Friday for finally being a bidder for some Russian oil after lots of uh, tankers were not being loaded. No one wanted to touch it. Uh, the threat of future sanctions. But they point out um, the energy industry cannot assure continued provision of essential products to people across Europe over the weeks ahead. So they finally, they found a price they're going to give some of that money to humanitarian uh, uh, interests. The other one is AXP, Visa, yes. MasterCard yes. over the weekend. Times has a piece out right now saying, ironically, the early victims of that pullout are going to be people who were trying to get out of Russia because they opposed the war, whom Putin wanted out of the country anyway. Right, and now we're no longer going to be able to use their credit cards, Get their bank accounts. Right. Yeah. And Whereas, by the way, China it, it, steps in. Right. You know, it gets complicated a bit as well, Morgan, because there, if you're in Russia, you may not be able to use your MasterCard or Visa unless it's on a different network than their network, in which case you may be able to. Not that it was not an insignificant decision for American Express, MasterCard or Visa. It's an important decision. Uh, it is a blow, without a doubt, to the Russian economy. But to Carl's point, it may also be having unintended consequences for those who have left the country or are trying to and want to use their credit cards to mm -hmm. actually pay for things. As you can imagine, they may have left in a hurry as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this just goes back to sort of the shades of gray that a conflict like this in a very connected world and, and globalized world uh, really kind of highlights here. And as I just mentioned, I mean, you have those American firms pulling out and you have Chinese firms that are stepping in in its place, which, by the way, is a dynamic we've been talking about in theory, where tech is concerned for a number of years. I mean, this was this has been the argument of a Mark Zuckerberg with Facebook and Meta for a number of years, too, and everybody kind of rolled their eyes. But here's where it could potentially yeah. play out in real life. And, and you can see what that means in terms of, I guess, the the most valuable of commodities on the world stage information, Carl. Um, meanwhile, Carl, we should point out the market well off its lows, uh, with futures, I should say, well off their lows right now. And talking to a number of people this morning, of course, the oil market is, as we started with, it is going to be the most important tell perhaps today overall. Um, and then a lot of questions about the oligarchs, too, is what I keep getting. You know, do they have margin loans? What's that going mm -hmm. to mean? Are they pulling out of private equity funds? Because obviously we are talking about multi-multi-billionaires, perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars yep. for these oligarchs as well. So yet another part of the story to keep in, yeah. keep in mind. UBS has some numbers on their exposure to some of those high net worth individuals. Meantime, we're watching oil policy, uh, potential congressional aid, whether a third player could broker some more advanced talks. Let's get to Kayla Tausche for the latest this morning. Morning, Kayla. Good morning, Carl. Let's bring you up to speed on what's been happening in Ukraine for the last 48 hours. Violence has been erupting across the country as civilians try to leave despite planned ceasefires that were supposed to allow safe passage. Shellings in the port city of Mariupol halting evacuations for two days with hundreds of thousands prevented from escaping. And in Irpin, north of Kiev, a family killed while trying to leave. U.S. officials say they now see credible reports of intentional attacks on civilians, which would be a war crime. Meanwhile, pressure on Western leaders to ban Russian oil is growing with coordinated action possible as soon as this week, according to a UK official, although Carl, you did just mention the comments from Germany's chancellor. And while the US has feared that such a ban would simply allow President Putin to sell less oil at higher prices to countries like China and India, it now appears there could be support for such a move. We are now in, uh, in very active discussions with our European partners uh, about banning the, uh, the import of Russian oil uh, to our countries, while, of course, at the same time, 
maintaining a steady uh, global supply of, uh, of oil. We are looking, uh, again, as we speak, yeah. in coordination with allies and partners at this prospect so- of banning oil imports. Former Deputy Energy Minister Konstantin Chijik tells me Russia is now eyeing a third nuclear site in the south of Ukraine to capture and use as leverage after already taking the Chernobyl site and the Zaporizhia plant last week, killing some staff and forcing others to work around the clock against safe operating procedures. A third round of ceasefire talks between Russia and Ukraine set to begin at this hour, according to a top advisor to Ukraine's president. So far, Russia has not delivered on anything agreed in the prior two rounds. Guys? Which is incredibly unfortunate, but perhaps not that surprising. I mean, the seizure of nuclear assets is particularly alarming. Kayla, just to go back to these headlines we're getting this morning around a potential oil ban, I mean, is there, is there a possibility, is there a growing likelihood that even if Europe or Germany was not to go forward with such a ban at this point in time that the U.S. could do it alone? Um, the U.S. certainly could do it alone, but it wouldn't have as much bang for its mm-hmm. buck if it were to do that. The discussions are still ongoing for some sort of coordinated move. There were some reports out of Japan overnight that Japan uh, might join into uh, an, an oil embargo there as well. So even if Germany is out of the equation, which according to the chancellor's comments this morning, it appears that they are backing away from this, there is still this idea that it would need to be done in concert with many countries to have the maximum impact. There is a secure call happening happening at 10.30 this morning between President Biden and the leaders of UK, France and Germany. This is going to be top billing on that call to see how we proceed from here. There are also several other items under consideration in Congress, whether it's banning Russia's status as uh, a a most favored nation for trading status uh, or revoking its membership in the World Trade Organization. All of that is on the table. It just depends at this point uh, in the 11th hour which countries sign on to it. Carl. Kayla, appreciate that. We'll come back to you a lot today. Uh, Kayla Tausche watching some of the developments. Sort of brings to mind, David, uh, something uh, Jim actually tweeted earlier this morning uh, in terms of how Russia is going to fund the longer-term operations of this invasion. He writes, at what point will, he, uh, will Putin have to borrow to finance the war and no one buys his bonds? That's going to be an interesting. Can you asphyxiate their revenue flow once he has to start borrowing and financing? This thing. It's a question. It's certainly, you know, again, it brings, though, into it the idea of China and to what extent they're going to play a supportive role for Russia or are they going to become more neutral? Uh, I think that be- is very important here. But yeah, listen, their finances are reliant to a large extent, as we've said so many times, the Russian economy is obviously on on uh, on sales of uh, oil and natural mm-hmm. gas, period. And so you don't sell as much and you're not going to have as much money on hand. They've already had, listen, they had prepared reserves for this very potential uh, for some time, some over, what, $650 billion, but they have been unable to use much of that as well, as we know, given the sanctions and the broad sanctions that have taken place. Yeah, it's like uh, the famous words of General Petraeus two decades ago, tell me how this ends. And I think what's implied in that question from Jim Cramer is how long is this war going to stretch on, which I think is what investors and really the whole world is trying to wrap their head around. As long as Europe is buying gas from Russia, I would imagine there's a revenue flow that potentially can continue continue the conflict. We'll have to see. When we return, the Russia-Ukraine conflict is in focus. Shares of Lockheed Martin and North of Brumman are up 20% in the past two weeks. We're gonna look at what's ahead for defense stocks. Squawk on the street, we'll be right back. Every day, 
thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Shei, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Welcome back to Squawk in the Street. Defense stocks continue to trade higher this morning as conflict persists between Russia and Ukraine. Our next guest saying he sees the sector continuing to benefit for some time to come, also keeping an eye on midterm elections and a pending U.S. defense spending budget for 2023, which is expected later this month. Joining us now to discuss Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo senior equity analyst Matthew Akers. Matthew, thanks for being on with us today. Thanks for having me. I mean, these were stocks, defense stocks were essentially dead money for the better part of a year, almost a year and a half from really the presidential election of the fall of 2020 until just a couple of months ago. This conflict has certainly reignited the trade here. The big moves we've seen, your take on valuations and how much higher these could trade. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, defense stocks uh, tend to be pretty boring and then all of a sudden they're they're interesting. So, I, I mean, look, you know, I, I think in terms of valuation, the stocks, you know, they're at a little bit of a discount to the market right now. That's pretty close to where they've been on average historically. So, you know, despite the fact that we've gotten this big multiple expansion here over the last few months, I think there, there's still potentially room for them to move higher here. Okay. So what specifically do you like in the group? And I ask that as we've seen 17,000 anti-tank missiles, Javelin missiles, deployed by the U.S. and allies just in the past six days. I'd imagine there's going to be a very near-term bump in terms of restocking for some of these weapons that are getting sent immediately. But then there's also the longer-term programs we've been hearing about. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, on the funding, I I guess in terms of the dollar amount of the stuff that we've sent over to Ukraine so far, um, you know, it's a lot of weapons, but in the context of, you know, call it a $750 billion defense budget, um, it's really not a huge number. So I think, you know, the bigger question is going to be what happens to overall U.S. defense spending from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the clear direction is that it's going to go higher, right? I, I think, uh, you know, we're in the midterm elections this year. Uh, nobody's going to stand up and say we shouldn't spend on defense. So the, the direction is, is clearly uh, for it to go higher. Um, you know, in terms of the stocks, I think, you know, two that were overweight, uh, general dynamics, uh, where you get not only the defense budget uh, benefit, but then also a strong uh, business jet uh, growth and recovery from here. Um, and then L3 Harris, which, um, you know, is a little bit cheaper sort of on pension adjusted earnings. 
Uh, and I, I think it's pretty well situated because you're sort of more platform agnostic. You don't need to take a bet on which platform we're going to spend more on. Uh, they're really a supplier kind of a, across the DOD. Yeah, in terms of defense spending, both uh, here and the U.S., and then, of course, abroad among our allies, I mean, that the, the announcement by Germany last week cannot be understated how big a deal it was for that country to come out and basically say it was going to double its budget over the next couple of years. Um, curious, though, about whether defense spending here in the U.S. can actually keep pace with inflation, because we do know that the Pentagon is, and we're on a continuing resolution right now, which hopefully gets fixed this week, but we do know the Pentagon is burning through billions a month uh, just maintaining the status quo. Yeah, it's exactly right. And, and look, I, I think I think that we're going to get sort of inflation plus growth here. Um, you know, I, I think it will be a positive just to see Congress sort of move and come to an agreement, even on the fiscal 22 budget, which, as you mentioned, you know, we're sort of halfway through the year. We still haven't passed. We're still on our continuing resolution. I think these companies will benefit uh, just from having the certainty that comes from having that, that budget passed. In addition to that, you know, I think we're going to get finally uh, a budget with sort of a long-term spending forecast that we've, we've really been in the dark here for the last couple of years. You know, we're going to get a new national defense strategy. Uh, so we're going to get just a lot more clarity on, uh, on where defense spending goes from here. And finally, quickly, we were talking about Boeing a little bit earlier in the show. But when you see these companies, these aerospace companies that have a defense portfolio as well as a commercial aerospace or aviation portfolio and maybe a halt in the example of Boeing uh, on titanium coming out of Russia, how does that affect the company? Is that something you steer clear of in terms of investing in the sector right now? Yeah, I mean, it's something to be concerned about. I, I think, you know, Boeing provides a lot of the titanium for its supply chain. Um, I think that they have a pretty good stockpile. You know, since okay. 2014 invasion of Crimea, they've really been a lot more conservative about uh, making sure they have second sources, making sure that they have uh, enough titanium. So I, I think that they're set for a little while. If that, you know, if this situation and, and the, the stoppage of titanium were to drag out, that will eventually become more of a concern. I, you know, I think on the defense side, uh, you're going to be a little bit more insulated there. You know, there's something called the Barry Amendment uh, that basically the, the U.S. defense firms are, are going to buy from U.S. providers to the extent that that's possible. Uh, so, you know, on the defense side, the risk of any disruption there should be a lot lower. Okay. Matthew Akers, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Can't take your eye off some of the corporate news this morning. Got some fresh guidance out of Uber today. We'll talk about Oxy. Got an Apple event tomorrow. Uh, Bed Bath is up almost 100%. And Future's trying to go green here. We're back in a moment. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Market's going to have... Uh 
All its attention pinned to these talks in Belarus as a third round begins today. NASDAQ futures briefly went green, but obviously well off the early morning lows of a plus 300 on the Dow. Opening bell in just about four minutes. Take a look at Uber this morning. We've been trying to cover the reopening trade. It's been difficult given all the geopolitics, but Uber today does up its Q1 adjusted EBITDA guide. Uh, 130 to 150 million. Prior was 100 to 130. Uh, David, they talk about the mobility business bouncing back from Omicron faster than thought. Uh, yeah, mobility demand improved significantly through the month of February and uh, trips 90 percent recovered and gross bookings 95 percent versus February 2019. Of course, we are going at some point during this week. Uh, mentioned, Carl, maybe right now, but we're going to come back. You know, this was the week. This was when it all began two years ago more or less, uh, you know, the 14th, I think, Morgan, is what we kind of refer to as the great exodus from New York. Apple stores, yep. NBA, yep. Disney, exactly. Tom Hanks. Two, two years ago this week, yeah. So, uh, thankfully, there were only 80 cases in New York City the other day. <laughs> 80 cases. I saw that, and uh, New York City school children, mass optional beginning today. There's the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange is a big board today celebrating International Women's Day. Morgan on a pharmaceutical company focused on reproductive medicine at the NASDAQ internet service provider Cogent Communications. Just one more uh, internet traffic handler, David, that has cut off some Russian customers as uh, internet access, Netflix today, obviously um, the free press having to do a lot less. Yes, I mean, there it's it's the uh, it's uh, Putin and obviously his administration that are cracking down. But yeah, the numbers keep adding up in terms of what Russians will be able to avail themselves of and for uh, various companies. I mean, the hardest decisions, again, as, as we were saying earlier, and we're going to do more on this, are for those U.S. companies that have significant presence in the country. Uh, Pepsi, remember they bought that a Russian milk company a few years ago. They have a very large presence in Russia. McDonald's, yum. Now many, you know, they have franchised uh, restaurants, but they still have significant supply chains, significant numbers of employees in these countries. Uh, and so for them, it's, it's a, a much more difficult decision than it might be for simply a, a technology company, Morgan, that pulls its service, so to speak, and frankly, is not relying on a country that is what, only less than 2% of GDP for the world. Yeah. I, we keep talking about it. it's a tricky situation. I mean, I, I can tell you some of the conversations I've had with executives at certain companies, particularly at industrial companies and manufacturers, is that they're getting dozens and dozens and dozens of pages worth of sanctions and regulations and rules and guidelines that they're now having to parse through to basically assess what they're going to do in terms of business uh, in, in the region right now and what that means as you mentioned earlier, David, not only from an actual financial standpoint and a supply chain standpoint, but also from an employee standpoint as well, because this is just has so many different um, branches and so many different ways that it affects not only a company itself, but the people that comprise a company. Um, just yeah. take. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I was. <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in. We're in separate places. Point, That's Morgan. what's going on here. Um, EY, uh, former Ernst & Young, 4,700 people. Uh, that, that division being cut in Russia. They're the third of the big four accounting firms to announce a divorce from operations in that country. And we sort of just gloss past the logistics of what you do with that 
that labor supply and those that infrastructure, but that's, these are huge decisions. These, being are, made. these are big decisions. And again, they're going to have an impact on your own employees in the country. And is it really something you want to be doing? Penalizing them in some fashion or in a significant fashion by the loss of their job and their income in this obviously what is going to be an extraordinarily difficult economy for the Russian people right now. Mm. Uh, but, you know, Jeff Sonnenfeld uh, over at Yale, our friend there, is following this pretty closely. He's going to join us, I think, in the next hour as well. Yes. But, you know, uh, uh, Morgan, I mean, um, according to his numbers, McDonald's, for example, 9% of revenues from Russia or, and Ukraine. Um, uh, you know, you, you, you look at some pretty big numbers. Philip Morris, 8%. Uh, Pepsi as well, 4.4%. Uh, of revenue. So those are not insignificant numbers and or decisions for those companies as we take a look at the broader market, which is well off its lows. The Nasdaq now already, not now, already in positive territory after, of course, futures an hour or so ago looked to have it deep uh, in negative territory. Uh, but we have had a broader recovery at this point. Morgan, unclear exactly what's behind it. Perhaps some people reading into the latest ask from Russia in terms of this third round of negotiations or talks, I, should, I guess we should call them. At least there is an ask. Mm -hmm. Not that uh, the Ukrainians are going to have any interest in accepting any of those terms, but perhaps seen at least as something of a positive. Yeah, it certainly seems to be something of a positive this morning. We'll see how the day plays out as well, because we've had a number of days. I mean, we've had a lot of very volatile sessions for a number of weeks now, and, and we've seen days that have started relatively strong, or we've started to, or started lower, and then we've moved higher just to swing back uh, into negative territory at the close. So we have to see how all of this plays out and how these headlines continue to evolve through the day. I mean, to your point, even as we're speaking now, the Nasdaq just uh, going flat and actually turning slightly negative. Dow Transports is actually down right now. It's probably the biggest underperformer, which is not saying very much because it's a relatively quiet start to the session. But it is down about seven-tenths of one percent right now. It's being led lower by airlines, Delta Airlines, United Airlines, Alaska, JetBlue, all of these names, given the fact that, you know, we're talking about it earlier. We're two weeks this week or two years this week from the pandemic. And just as these airlines are starting to move towards a return to normal, we've got this spike in crude oil and a subsequent spike in refined product, including jet fuel right now. Many of these airlines are actually unhedged. unhedged. So how is this going to play out? Not to mention the fact that we talk about cyber threats, Carl, and you have some freight and logistics companies that are actually now starting to get affected by cyber. Expeditors International uh, was impacted last week, and we've seen that stock uh, fall in recent sessions because of that, too. Yeah, uh, the, I know um, the combination of the potential decline in transatlantic passengers, obviously, uh, with the higher oil prices had, I think it was Webbush or Evercore last week, David, asking at what point do we start to see airlines start to raise capital again in a major way uh, in advance of a prolonged, difficult time uh, transatlantic. Interesting, uh, Morgan mentioned transports, Ackman in the Canadian Pacific. Mm -hmm. And you got to talk some Oxy this morning, this Buffett Icon deal. Yeah, uh, Carl Icahn's out of Occidental Petroleum. Uh, made a decent amount of money, of course. It was not the easiest of... Uh, of periods, a three-year investment, which uh, saw that stock uh, far lower than it is right now. You can see this up yet again, of course. Um, he did get a couple of people on the board. Um, Vicky Olive kept her job, so to speak, but brought somebody in above her in the uh, executive chairman role uh, as well. But he's out. Buffett getting bigger in the name. Uh, so I kind of made some money there. Um, Buffett getting bigger in the name. What's most interesting to me, though, 
is you take a look at that stock, let's call it 57 bucks right now. It was not quite three years ago, remember, when Occidental had to raise enormous amounts of money to fund what was that overbid for, um, for Anadarko. 76 bucks a share, right? 38 in cash, 0.6094 shares of Oxy. Um, and where'd they get the money? They got it from Warren Buffett. And we made a lot of this, Jim and I at the time. $10 billion, 8% per annum. That's 800 million bucks a year you're paying a to Buffett, but he's gotten larger now, buying common stock. And by the way, at the time, it seemed unlikely to say the least that his warrants, his 80 million shares of Occidental uh, exercise price was 62.50. But now you're you're very close. You're within reach. In fact, the open today, it looked like he might even get close to 62.50. So Morgan, he's got another 80 million shares that he could exercise on given the warrants. Uh, as you take a look at Mr. Icon, who obviously exits again, happy that he made money there uh, in what was a significant position for him as well. What a difference a couple of years makes. I mean, we're going to talk about this merger of equals, the $6 billion merger, merger of equals, David, between Oasis Petroleum and Whiting Petroleum as well. I mean, you're starting to see it, more consolidation in U.S. oil names as we do have these high prices and we do have this ongoing increased focus on things like free cash flow rather than production levels. Yeah, and that's the key. I mean, because there's going to be a lot of pressure on these U.S.-based companies to start increasing production. By the way, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, And to your point, and one we've made many times, they have been encouraged by their shareholder bases not to put money towards more production, or I should say at least the bulk of whatever free cash they're producing towards more production, but to return it to shareholders in the form of higher dividends or share buybacks, Carl. And that has been the case. We'll see if that changes. But again, all these things that are being discussed in terms of creating more production here to potentially offset any reduction in actual crude from Russia, it's going to take time. Yep. Uh, Morgan mentioned uh, the uh, the reach out to Venezuela. It doesn't sound like that went very far. Axios says uh, the president may be planning a possible trip to Saudi uh, to see what they can do. Alberta over the weekend saying, look, we've got some excess rail uh, and and, uh, pipe capacity that could help. But David, it's a lot about uh, rig quality uh, and kind of in short supply. And then we don't even, labor, that's an issue that will be in the background as well, even if they could start to move on some of these leases. It's a great point. We've talked so often about the labor shortage here and and, and the many forms that it takes, including perhaps getting workers in the oil fields to get these things done. yeah, and then, you, you know, you still deal with the sort of a pipeline deficiency to a certain extent, at least Jim will tell you about for certain parts of the country. Uh, yeah, there's no shortage of potential impediments. At the same time, um, there's no reason why over time we can't, if there really is a dedication to doing it. But it does, Morgan, go or Carl, it goes against sort of some of the climate change initiatives that have been right. ongoing for well, some time. It, Morgan, it does remind us we haven't yet mentioned what Elon Musk uh, tweeted over the weekend, and that oh. is, hate to say it. Uh, But it is time to start uh, actively expanding oil and gas production. Says not necessarily good news for Tesla, uh, but extraordinary times demand extraordinary measures. And then expanded on that on nuclear, offering to go eat food on television from areas where you think this might be a potential environmental hazard. Those who talk about the energy transition, Morgan, of course, will always bring up the decision to not include nuclear as a key energy source and question whether that is obviously going to be smart. Because over this next 20 years, how quickly we can get to full renewable status 
uh, and or, you know, uh, is, is a key question. And without nuclear, it makes it much more difficult. It makes it much more difficult. And it's a little crazy that that's sort of been put into the bucket of uh, negative energy sources because it is such a clean energy source. I mean, the biggest the biggest issue actually really around nuclear, my understanding and reporting on utilities over the years is the fact that at times it is not economically viable. It can be very expensive to generate that type of power. But given what we're seeing with crude at you know, multi-year highs and gas at multi-year highs and just the, the national security geopolitical ramifications of energy on the world stage right now, I mean, you got to listen to somebody like Elon Musk who's saying this. And it is pretty incredible, by the way, that we have had policies both in terms of Wall Street and in terms of presidential administration in the last couple of years that have arguably de-incentivized American oil and gas. And here it is, that cross-current uh, push and pull, Carl, for better or worse, about about energy and, a and as a national security threat, which in some ways does bring us back to the 1970s. I'm hearing more and more comparisons to the 1970s between inflation, between conflict on the geopolitical stage, and then, of course, now the spike we're seeing in energy prices, which is worrisome and certainly is drawing up some of those recession concerns as well. Um, worth noting, by the way, maybe we're having a slightly quieter session at least to start because we don't have that Fed speak this week with Fed in a quiet period. That's going to be key, too, looking to next week and what the Fed is going to do in the midst of all of this. Yeah, I think it's the combination of, um, of, the, of the energy pressure on the household balance sheet and some of the, actually, Webbush, strangely today, downgrades uh, Ralph Lauren and PVH. They say that uh, last week's news that the Russian troops attacked the nuclear power plant seems to have been a game changer in the eyes of the public. So they're worried about retailers highly exposed to Europe. PVH is most exposed. Yes. Um, kind of makes you wonder if you're really in a, in a worrisome mode about consumer, why Bed Bath, David? was up 2x this morning <laughs> yeah, on this Ryan Now Cohen only thing. up 75%. I did want to come back to electric cars, which would seem to do well in an environment where gas is five or six bucks a gallon. But yeah, to your point, Bed Bath up 75%. Let's take a look at it right now on the news that uh, Ryan Cohen, you remember him, of course, Mr. Mean, when he moved into GameStop and that stock went crazy. It's still obviously at heights. It was nowhere near until he actually started to, uh, to buy those shares. He's not chairman of that company. Not going to take a similar position at Bed Bath, but he does own 9.8%. So 10% now is, you know, $1.7 million market cap or something like that, um, under two, I think. But um, that's not an insignificant move, uh, Morgan. Unclear whether or where those memesters stand these days and whether they're following Mr. Cohen in. I, I haven't necessarily seen any ice cream cones or frogs <laughs> or anything else that rocket I can't ships. quite decipher. Yeah, rocket ships, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. It's interesting. I mean, the strategic alternatives, including separating Bye Bye Baby, given the growth potential at, at that particular brand, um, or the idea of a full sale of a company and the fact that it could be run better under private equity. I mean, this is this is an example of one of those retailers that has really suffered as it's tried to implement the strategic strategy around supply chain and inventory issues. Um, and what we talk about every single day and have been really since the start of the pandemic, Carl. Um, and maybe whereas once it was a rising tide that lifts all boats and that you could argue that was the theme for 2021 where, where retail stocks were concerned, 2022, amid inflation and amid some of these supply chain issues, it's really who's navigating well, who isn't, and Bed Bath & Beyond is certainly in focus. Uh, yeah, that's what a gain, 72 uh, percent in what's been a difficult tape, obviously, for the past few days. And again today, you could argue, Dow's down 311. Uh, we are just a shade below that. 
4,300 point that we've been watching so closely for several days now. Lots of talk about with uh, NYSE President Lynn Martin, including the big board recently halting trading of stocks in Russia-based companies. Before we go to break, take a look at the bond report as well. Not a lot of Fed speak, as uh, Morgan pointed out, but everything's going to lead up to Thursday and a very important CPI print, 10-year 177. Not many down names in the green this morning uh, to start a busy week. Caterpillar is going to lead you, followed by Amgen, Home Depot, and Apple, which we'll talk a lot more about uh, in the coming hours and tomorrow as we near their product event. But for the time being, down 340. Don't go anywhere. The NYSE recently halted trade of three Russian-focused ETFs and three Russian companies. Joining us this morning, the New York Stock Exchange president, Lynn Martin, is with us here at Post 9. It's great to see you. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me today. Uh, is this a difficult call to make, these, these D-listings? How hard is that? Yeah, you know, it's something that our NYSE reg team continuously monitors throughout the trading day, and particularly when you have unfortunate circumstances such as what's going on in the Russia-Ukraine circumstance. Uh, our job in these circumstances is to continue to provide the most transparent, fair, orderly, and efficient markets possible to allow buyers to meet sellers and to allow risk to be managed. So the moves we made last week were the most prudent, given the evolving situation. Is there a, a feeling that they could be relisted at some point, or is this a permanent move? Well, importantly, they have not been delisted. It's a regulatory halt which basically means the stocks and the ETFs are close for trading at the moment while the situation continues to evolve. And the NYSE reg team is going to continue to monitor improving market conditions and market conditions holistically, and when appropriate, we'll make the determination on next steps. Uh, one fear that people had uh, prior to the invasion was what would happen to market function if, if it, in fact, did happen. Have you been impressed overall, globally? Yeah, you know, something like this, preparing for an event like this and preparing for volatility in markets is something that takes years of preparation. So at NYSE, we have hardened our systems. We've made a tremendous amount of technology investment, both in our matching engines with our migration to our new state-of-the-art matching engine called Pillar as well as continuing to harden our systems around it to ensure robustness, reliability, scalability, and security, importantly, security during this situation. Are you seeing uh, IPO pipeline interest fall off a cliff? Yeah, interest, no, but in terms of folks coming to market, there has been a bit of a delay. It's been a very slow Q1, but that's not unlike what we saw in 2019 when we woke up to a government shutdown. 2019, the year ended incredibly strong. In 2020, around this time, two years ago, we had tremendous volatility, which really put the IPO markets on pause. We are having a tremendous amount of conversations with potential new issuers, uh, and they're looking forward to coming to market at an appropriate time. So we're very confident about the second half right. of this year. Uh, Time's got a piece this morning on companies essentially betting on, trying to look through this, right, betting on some longer-term prosperity, yes. buybacks. Uh, Goldman today ups their buyback forecast to a trillion for the year, mm -hmm. would be 12% growth. Mm -hmm. are, are you, is that your sense in terms of corporate mood? Yeah, I think corporates continue to be very bullish about our markets, very impressed with the reliability and the scalability of our markets, and the way our markets have continued to perform in spite of the increased volatility we saw in January and in last month. The threat of cyber attacks has not materialized in the way perhaps that uh, some had believed it might, right. but it's early. Yeah. 
Um, how prepared are you in case the Russians really do amp it up? Yeah, again, preparing for reliability and security of systems is something that's not done at the moment of a potential threat. It's something that is years in the making. And our cyber team, I would say, is some of the best in class, particularly given the systemic importance of the New York Stock Exchange. So I feel that we're very prepared from a are you, cyber Are you expecting it? I mean, is there, you know, has the U.S. government been in touch at all? We've, I've heard from some other financial services executives, certainly there's been conversation between the government and private There is sector. always the threat of cyber in this day and age in an increasingly electronic and connected environment, which is why you have to prepare for years and years and ensure that your systems have the appropriate amount of resiliency and security around it. It's why you never take your foot off the cast in terms of protecting against potential cyber threats. What about physical security? Are you, have, are you thinking about that, adding to that? As well, a, as I mean, a... you, don't, you, you don't live in one of the most iconic buildings in New York City and not think about physical security all the time. And that is something that our teams are well prepared to deal with to the extent that anything manifests itself. One, one looming question is, and this applies to all kinds of sanctions and, and, and corporate uh, departures from the country, is that, all right, let's say for a moment you get a ceasefire, yeah. right? The rollback of those moves is not going to be immediate and, and yeah. might not come back at all, right? Yeah. Uh, how long do you think it would take for a trading halt to end? Well, trading halts, we can open the market pretty much at a moment's notice, as long as we give the market right. advance notice that we're doing it. Um, so it's something that, that's why it's important to note that we did do the trading halt as opposed to a delisting. A delisting is much more complicated. Finally, you know, we had a lot of SPACs listed on, and that was obviously very helpful. Is it your sense that that's sort of over and done with? No, I wouldn't say that. I think SPACs is another interesting way that companies can continue to come to market. You've got the direct listing, you've got the traditional IPO, and you've got SPAC business combinations. So I think having choice for issuers to be able to join the public markets is important, and we think that that's a trend that will continue. It's good to see you. Nice good to, to have you on you set, too. too, right? Thanks for having yeah. me. Uh, Lamar, good to see you, the NYSC president. You've been listening to The Opening Bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Meet Gail. Her thing is being a supermom. And supermom has a lot on her supersized plate. <laughs> Ain't that the truth. But at Walmart Pharmacy, supermom recently got her whole family updated on all their vaccines. We knocked it out during a grocery run. No appointment. That's next level supermom. From pneumonia to shingles, HPV and more. Get no cost vaccinations from an expert pharmacist where you already shop. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. $0 copay with most insurances. State age and health restrictions may apply.